Amen. It's comforting to know that the Lord is with us Amen. in the time of trouble and times of despair, when times are good and when times are bad, the Lord has promised to be with us. And when we talk about the Lord being our light, right, that's not like there's a, some magical ray of sunshine that follows us all throughout every day. One of the ways the Lord shows himself to be our light is through his word. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, the Lord's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Right? What do we do in dark times? We look to the Lord. What do we do when we're in danger? We look to the Lord. The Lord has provided for us all we need, the scriptures say, for life, eternal life, and godliness. Right? So this word is sufficient for us. And so as we gather together, again, we sing God's word, we pray God's word, we read God's word. And when it's time for the sermon, we don't then, then switch to something else. We open God's word, right. right? We go back to God's word. And so we do that this morning as we continue our study through the gospel of Matthew. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We've been walking through this book slowly over the last few years, section by section. Last week, we, we jumped back into the book at this fourth sermon series that Jesus is giving in the book of Matthew related to the church. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 14. And this morning, we'll look at verses 15 through 20. And so if you've got your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, this morning, we'll look at verses 15 and 20. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he says this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, uh, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Amen. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, often this passage has been framed using terms such as the process of church discipline. That's clearly here, I think. But more broadly, I think what we see in these verses is our part in a church's discipleship. Right? So, so yes, it's church discipline, but I think what we see in the larger picture is our part in a church's discipleship. The larger role of what the church is to do in caring for and watching over each other's faith. I, th I think that's the, the overall main purpose here. And so the main point of this passage and the main point of the sermon is this. God has given the church the privilege and responsibility to watch over each other's lives. God has given the church the privilege and responsibility to watch over each other's lives. As we study this passage this morning, I think we'll see that watching over each other's lives involves three things. One, it involves loving confrontation. We see that in verse 15. Secondly, watching over each other's lives involves loving collaboration. We see that in verse 16. And point number three, watching over each other's lives involves a loving congregation. We see that in verses 17 through 20. So watching over each other's lives involves three things. One, loving confrontation. Two, loving collaboration. 
and three, a loving congregation. First, we see that watching over each other's lives involves loving confrontation. Now, perhaps those two ideas are at odds in your mind, love and confrontation. But love confronts, does it not? When you see a child sticking their finger into an electrical socket, you don't just sit back and say, because I love him, I'll just let him do what he wants. No, when you see a child doing something dangerous, you go towards them. You tell them that what they're doing is dangerous, and you call them to stop doing that thing. Why? Because you love them. Well, it's the same when you see people doing spiritually dangerous things. Things that will damage not only their bodies, but their souls. Jesus says in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Now, notice a few things here. Notice this is a conditional statement. If your brother sins, then you go and confront him. So we see a realistic picture that that Christians sin. We're not perfect people. Sin still happens. But notice that's not the norm. Not to be expected. All you're doing is going around sinning all the time. No, it's if he sins. In the instances when he sins. Even notice the terminology used here. It's not if a sinner sins. It's if your brother sins. It reminds us that in Christ, there's been a new creation that has been made. You and I are no longer defined by what we used to be defined by. You and I are are no longer in bondage to sin to have to keep on sinning. You and I are no longer regarded as sinners, but as brothers and sisters in Christ. We are one in him. He has made us what we were not. We are people who have been fundamentally changed at our core. Our nature is no longer that we must sin and that we're expected to sin. We've been regenerated, born again, made new by the power of God. We've been made new people with new relationships with God as our father, Jesus Christ as our big brother, and other Christians as brothers and sisters. We've been transformed. Saints, we we need to, to know that. We need to own that. So often we live as if we are what we were. So often we resign ourselves to the fact that we can't conquer this sin. We can't fight this temptation. It's useless. But that is a lie from the devil. It is not true. We are no longer dead in sin and captive to it to have to obey its calling. We have been set free by Christ to live holy lives for him. And yet, even as new creatures in Christ, we still have fallen bodies and live in a fallen world. And sometimes we will sin. That's the reality. But what should our response be when one another sins? And Jesus says, go and tell your brother his fault. Now, the ESV here says that you are to do this if he sins against you. If you have an NASB or an NIV, it simply says if he sins. That's because in some of the earliest manuscripts, that that last part, if he sins against you, is not found. Regardless, though, the idea is not just that you act or respond only if a fellow believer has personally done something against you. No, you act if a brother or sister is locked in unrepentant sin at all, regardless of if it's directly pointed to you or not, because of how it harms relationships. Primarily, all sin ruptures the relationships 
relationships between us and a righteous God. It puts us at odds with him as his enemies, deserving his just wrath and his punishment. And second, because of the relational effect of sin that it has on others. You see, in a very real way, your brother or sister's sin does affect you. Friends, personal sin has corporate effects. If you doubt that, think of how one man sinned. Adam stained all humanity. Think of how David's sin affected Bathsheba and Uriah, who was killed, and the child that David had with Bathsheba, who died. Think of how Achan's sin in Joshua chapter 7 brought judgment upon all the people of Israel, causing them to all be destroyed in battle, or many of them to be destroyed in battle. Your sin, my sin, affects us together. Sin has reverberating effects. Sin has ruinous effects. It destroys people. And so regardless of if it's personally directed against you, when you see a brother or sister in sin, we care enough to go to them, to confront them, to tell them about their sin, and to call them to repent, to turn away from their sin. And that's pretty contrary to much of the thinking in our times, in our experience, isn't it? I mean, we don't think folks should be buttoned in grown folks' business at all. Just live and let live is our modern mantra. And if someone does do something wrong, especially something that offends us or that we don't agree with, we don't confront them. We cancel them. We write them off. Basically say, to hell with them. But friends, do you know that if simply writing someone's sin off will lead to that eternal fate? It will send them to hell. Or, or someone personally sins against us, and we seemingly aren't affected on the outside. We seemingly let it slide. We still smile and greet them warmly on Sundays. But inwardly, our hearts are growing colder and more bitter and more hardened and more distant towards them. But that's, none of those responses are the type of responses that Jesus is calling us to hear. Jesus is calling us to a response fitting for the type of relationship that exists. This is your brother, your sister. And as such, it is our responsibility to watch over their faith, just as it is theirs to watch over mine. And so I can't. You can't let them linger long in sin. And notice it's, it's sin, clear sin that provokes this confrontation. In other words, Personal preferences or differences of opinion should not lead to calls for repentance. Amen. Amen. That another brother or sister thinks differently than you about schooling options for their children should not cause you to call it sin Amen. and to confront them over it. Amen. That another brother or sister who still upholds biblical standards but who votes differently from you should not cause you to call that thing sin and to confront them over it. That another brother or sister takes a specific action on some social issue that you yourself would never take. They march for racial equality or against abortion. It should not cause you to call that thing sin and to confront them over it. Now, you can have good substantive conversations about all these things. You can ask good questions and seek clarification. And you can come to different conclusions. But you should not then assume or assign sin and act in the sort of way that Jesus commands here to confront, confront them and command that they repent. No, there's some clear, specific sin or sin pattern that's in view in this passage. 
And as brothers and sisters in Christ, we're required to root it out. And that was Jesus' point in the previous passage, right? That, that we must do all we can to root out sin, to turn away from sin. Not just individually, but corporately. And just like in the previous passage, where Jesus used the parable of the shepherd leaving the 99 in search of the one, so we are to care enough that we seek after brothers and sisters who are wandering away from the Lord, who are stuck in their sin. Now, what's this confronting, this confrontation, this going and telling your brother or sister their fault, what does that require? Well, it requires a few things. First, it requires love. We have to care enough to tell him or her their fault. Friends, apart from what we think or what the world says, it is unloving to let someone live in sin. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder, do you have anyone in your life who loves you, cares enough about you to point out the dangers in your life? Or are all your relationships centered and built around the dangerous, sinful lifestyles that you live? Does the boyfriend or girlfriend you keep sleeping with really love you, care about you? What about the friends you keep getting drunk or high with? Try stopping any of those activities with them and see the kind of response they give you. Friends, in Christ, you actually get people who care enough about you to not participate in the dangerous, soul-damaging, deadly sins with you, but who pry into your life to pull you away from sin and its deadly consequences. That's love. Secondly, going in and telling your brother or sister their fault requires boldness. Did you notice how Jesus says here to, to do this between you and your brother or sister alone? You know, it's, it's amazing how bold how confident some profession, key, professing uh, Christians can be behind keyboards. All right. I mean, people be blasting folks, calling out their sin, making dogmatic judgments about them from thousands of miles away, but won't sit across the table or in the living room with someone from their own congregation to tell them about their sin. There's a boldness that's required. Not a cocky boldness, but a confident boldness that you're confronting for the right purpose and that you're confronting a brother, a loved one. A confident boldness required in order to actually go and talk to them one to one, face to face, eye to eye about some sin in their life. Saints, don't do the more cowardly thing and talk to others about somebody's sin. Or wait till you're around a bunch of other people to bring something up in someone's life. Keep the matter private if you can. Boldly go to him or her one to one. It shows them that your intention isn't simply to put them on blast, but to cause them to turn back to the Lord from their sin. And this require a requirement of boldness to, to confront someone one-to-one. -one. It's not just for members. It's also for pastors. Right. I need to be reminded of this, too. The, the Sunday sermon is not a secondary platform to tell folks what you're too timid to tell them to their face. Amen. I'm mindful of that when I'm preparing sermons. I don't want to say nothing up here about any individual that I wouldn't say to your face. And so I'm not trying to pinpoint folks from up here. I'm, I'm thinking through categories, but not specific people. I want to be reminded of Jesus' command to go one-to-one, -one, face to face with brothers and sisters. And so if you ever see or sense that I'm wrongly using this pulpit to, to bully people individually or to berate people, then you know what you must do? Follow Jesus' command here. Confront me one-to-one. -one. Call me to turn away from my sin. 
I'm not above that. Yes, I'm your pastor, but more fundamentally, I'm your brother. And I need you to watch over my life and boldly confront me if and when I'm in sin. Third, going in telling your brother or sister about their sin, confronting them requires wisdom. We need wisdom in two regards. We need wisdom regarding timing, when to say something. Friends, every sin does not require confrontation. The apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 8, that love covers a multitude of sins. Meaning, we don't need to follow up after every single instance of sin. We need wisdom to know when something is so egregious or so obvious or so dangerous or so constant that we should say something. We need wisdom regarding timing. We also need wisdom regarding tone. Perhaps you know this from experience. How we come, come across can make a world of difference. We need wisdom to know how to say what we must say, how to approach a brother or sister and bring up hard things. Fourth, going and confronting a brother or sister in Christ regarding their sin requires trust. They have to know that you have their best interest in mind. And now some of that trust comes as part of our relationship. In Christ, we are family. We are members in the same local body. And so in case it's not obviously clear, the most normal, the most natural, the most intended sphere in which these confrontation, uh, confrontations in this passage happen are within a local church. People who committed to care for each other. But even in a church, relationships take time to build. Trust takes time to build, especially if you've experienced the betrayal of trust, either in homes or churches you grew up in. So, so if you see something in a brother or sister's life that is sinful, but you have very little interaction with them, maybe they just joined the church or maybe you just joined the church, it may not be the best thing if your first encounter with them is to call out some sin or perceived sin in their life. Again, of course, there, there's exceptions if something is so obvious or so egregious. But generally, people are more willing to listen to you if they trust that you are ultimately for them. If they trust that you care for them. And that trust comes as you invest in the relationship over time. And lastly, confronting a brother or sister about their sin requires hope. Hope that is not an exercise in futility. Hope that this brother or sister can change, can turn back from their sin, and will. I mean, notice the purpose at the end of, of verse 15. It's to win back your brother, to see them listen to what you say and repent of their sin. We don't just hurl charges of sin at people. We hold out hope that they will turn from it. The goal is to win them. And we trust that the Lord wants to see them have victory over sin. And so we do the hard, sometimes awkward, but loving, bold work of confronting them in their sin, calling them and pleading with them, exhorting them to turn from it and to turn back to the Lord. No, that way we, we acknowledge that repentance is not just a one-time thing, but a constant exercise needed for all Christians for all their lives. And God uses us as the means to lead his people towards it. Since we have jobs, each of us, as Christians, as church members, I mean, as you look around this room, what you're looking at is people that the Lord has given you to care for. And part of that care involves lovingly confronting each other in sin in hopes of seeing genuine repentance. Now, if that's one of the ways God intends to, to care for you, 
then ask yourself a few questions. One, are you a confrontable person? Do you have a posture of welcoming others to speak into your life? Or are you closed off from others? Have you put a barrier up that no one can break through? Two, how do you respond when others do confront you regarding your sin? Do you immediately go into defense mode? Do you immediately fight back? Or do you start making excuses and, and cast blame on others for their sin? Yours isn't as bad as theirs. How do you respond when your spouse points out your sin? Why are you so on edge, so combative, when the person closest to you who wants to see your sanctification confronts you and when this confrontation about sin is meant to help you. Saints, loving confrontation is one of the means God intends to keep us in the faith by. We need him to help us both initiate and receive this confrontation for the spiritual good of each other. But there's a second component of what this looks like, or what it looks like to watch over and care for each other in the church. Point number two, it involves loving collaboration. Now look at verse 16. Jesus says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Don't you just love how realistic the Bible is? There's no pie-in-the-sky picture that a Christian never sins, nor that any time he or she does sin, that when confronted about it, that they always and readily accept what's said and instantly turn away from sin. No, the Scriptures tell us that sin can stick with us, and we can be stubborn in setting it aside. The Bible is realistic about that. And the Bible is also sufficient. It tells us what to do in those instances. Take one or two others with you. Collaborate with other Christians to win a brother or sister back. But notice, this is only to be done if the brother or sister does not listen to the first step of private confrontation. There's a hope and even an expectation that most conflicts are resolved, that many sins are repented of from that initial one-to-one -one going and telling a brother his fault. If and when that happens, there's no need for any other steps, no need to involve others after the fact, to go tell others, can you believe what such and such did? Not after they stopped doing it. No, the situation has been remedied. What you must do then is just praise God for his work in purifying his people and renewing their faith. But if that's not the case, if there's a refusal to repent, a stubbornness to submit to correction, then you involve others. Who are these others? Well, it's others in the local church. Trusted brothers and sisters who love the Lord and his people and who have the best interest of other brothers and sisters in mind. And now it's at this point that, that one of the, the one or two others you might involve might be one of the elders or the pastors of the church. You might tell them that you've confronted this person about some evident sin. You've given it time, but you haven't seen any repentance. And you're worried about them, and so you want to invite others to join with you in helping this person. The pastor might personally join you in confronting this person, or they might possibly suggest others who might help. In any case, your involving others isn't in a juicy, conniving way, intended to smear or shame the other person, but to secure firmer conclusions about their sin. And again, ultimately, to win them back. Notice Jesus says that others are involved so that every charge may be established by the evidence 
of two or three witnesses. It points back to passages in the Old Testament, like Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, where two or three witnesses were were required among the people of Israel to make a judicial verdict. Well, here the same principle is used among the new people of God, the true people of God. Multiple witnesses are called to examine the situation, to see if what a brother or sister is charged with is actually sin, and if they are actually refusing to repent of it. And I think it reminds us that none of us individually are always the best judges of a situation. We may, for whatever reason, whether our own tenderness of conscience or our own past experiences, be calling something sin that's not sin. Others help us to see that. Or we may, for whatever reason, whether our too idealistic view of what repentance looks like or our too limited timeline of when it must happen, be saying that someone is not repentant when in fact they may be. Others help us see that. We collaborate with other brothers and sisters who are wise and who are gracious and who are gentle and who give us a better and broader analysis of the situation and who with us labor to lead a straying sheep away from unrepentant sin and back to the Lord. Now, I said one of these other Christians that you might involve or collaborate with may be elders, but they don't have to be. There's no requirement that it's only pastors. I think it makes the point that every believer is responsible for every other believer in a church. In a local church, there should be multiple people who are equipped and able and willing to care for each other, not just the pastors. That's why we do not want to professionalize ministry here. Put all the hard work into the hands of paid pastors. Now, as the Lord allows, I'd love for us to one day be able to hire additional staff to help with the work. But pastors, whether paid or unpaid, are not called to do all the work of ministry. Pastors are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so that's why here we we haven't adopted a program-heavy, pastor-led approach to every aspect of the Christian life but a more organic way of doing life together, of building relationships, of checking in on one another, of building each other up and calling each other to holiness. Now, can we do a better job of that? Of course we can. There's no doubt about that. If you have some analysis of how we're doing already or how we might improve, I genuinely want your feedback. Please tell us. But what we are trying to do is to build into and mature an entire body of believers who together shoulder the responsibility of caring for one another. And saints, let me tell you, it's been a joy in the two and a half years since I've been back seeing that happen. Hearing stories after stories of multiple members seeking out, caring for other members, including calling them from sin. It's a sign of a growing body, not in terms of huge numbers, but in terms of holiness and holding each other accountable. Where private, loving confrontation does not produce repentance, more involved, slightly broader, loving collaboration might. Collaborating and co-laboring with other spiritual family members to bring back a brother or sister into the fold. Lastly, we see that loving and watching over each other's lives involves a loving congregation. Point number three, a loving congregation. The presence and pleading of two or three brothers or sisters in the faith should be a strong sign to a sinning saint of the seriousness of their sin. It should provoke some somber reflection and produce a change. But again, the Bible is honest 
Jesus here is honest. That does not always happen. And so a third step of oversight is needed. If a brother or sister has rejected the intervention of one-on-one confrontation, if they've rejected the, the intervention of two or three other Christians collaborating with them together, then the third step, you take the matter to the entire congregation. Look there, verse 17. Jesus says, if he, the sinning brother, refuses to listen to them, the two or three others, then you tell it to the church. It's the second mention in Matthew's gospel of this word church. We saw it back in chapter 16 upon Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus said that upon this rock of truth and Everyone else who, like Peter, made this right profession about Jesus, that he would build his church, his ecclesia, his gathered people. Here we see that the church is not just the gathered people of God who make the right profession about Jesus, but who are also called together to guard that profession, to make sure that others among them who make that profession are living lives according to it. The gathered church together is the highest line of authority, the last line of examination. Progressively, things have gone from involving just yourself in helping a brother or sister to one or two others to now the entire body of believers. And just to be clear here, when Jesus talks about telling the unrepentant person's sin or sin pattern to the church, he's not talking about the universal church made up of all believers everywhere. He's talking about the local church, made up of a specific group of believers who meet together, who know each other, and who have made it clear that they are committing to care for each other. Saints, that's what a local church is. That's predominantly what the Bible has in mind when it talks about a church, a specific group of people gathering together regularly to worship Jesus through preaching and through praying and through singing and through the ordinances and who guard each other's faith through discipleship and discipline. Tell the matter, Jesus says finally, to the entire congregation. Perhaps that's shocking to you that Jesus is suggesting here, is commanding here, that your dirty laundry be aired out in front of everybody. I mean, many of us grew up in families where there was one cardinal rule that must not be broken. What goes on in this house, you better stay in this house. But in Jesus' family, the values are different. What goes on in a man or woman's house, if it's against God's word and against God's will, and if he or she refuses to turn away from it, no matter all the other efforts involved, should be told in the meeting house among the people of God. But again, the purpose isn't to show how bad you are as a sinner and for the church to then just kind of corporately shame you. The purpose, the goal is the same as it was in, in verse 15, to win you back, to restore you to the right path of following God. And Jesus is willing to go to whatever extremes necessary to achieve that goal. That's how deep your sin is. That's how deep Jesus loves you. That he do whatever, including deputizing the entire church to seek after you. Now, exactly what what it is to tell the, the entire church right, what that exactly looks like. Jesus doesn't explicitly say. In our church, it's usually me letting you know at a, at a regular members meeting about a situation and giving us a few months as a congregation to try and engage a straying member, inviting you as a church to pray for a brother or sister in sin and to help draw them back from their sin. Again, it just shows the importance of the entire body in the Christian life. As a church member, you don't just show up on Sundays to get fed. 
you shoulder responsibility for other brothers and sisters in Christ. To Cain's question, way back in Genesis 4, am I my brother's keeper? The entire church responds resoundingly from Matthew 18. Yes, I am. The, the, the net is broadened. And more brothers and sisters are engaged in pleading with an unrepentant brother or sister. And to be clear here, what are we pleading? Not simply, stop doing that. Stop doing what you're doing. That, that's certainly part of it. But we plead with them as we would any unrepentant sinner by proclaiming the gospel. That's what we all need to hear daily over and over. We remind them that they are not free agents, but that a good and holy and just God made them and they are accountable to him. We remind them that sin is rebellion against this holy and good and perfect God. We remind them that the penalty of sin is death, is eternal separation from God in hell. We remind them, however, that Jesus Christ loved you so much that he came and he paid the penalty for your sin. He died the death that you deserve to die so that you might be saved, saved from God's wrath but also saved, rescued from sin's grip, from sin's power. Just as Jesus rose up from the grave victorious, we, united with him, rise up victorious as new people, sin no longer having any victory over us. And we remind them that what's required of us is to live with Jesus forever. And what's required of that is to turn from our sin. That we might have forgiveness of every single, can you imagine? Forgiveness for every single one of the sins that you have forgotten? God grants that through Jesus. Amen. You don't have to keep living in that. God is granting you that. If you would turn away from your sins and trust in Christ alone. My friend, perhaps sin has some grip or seemingly unbroken hold on you this morning. And you need to be reminded of these old gospel truths. Perhaps you've never believed them before, never really heard them before. You, you, you might have some faint uh, reminders or remembrances of, of hearing pieces of it, but you never really heard it before. Well, today is the day you can hear this message and respond to it. Jesus Christ loves you so much that he does not intend to leave you in your sin. This very morning, he's telling you to come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I, more than anything or anyone else, will give you rest. Amen. Friends, don't delay. You can have that today. At Temple Hills Baptist Church, we don't have a kind of altar call where you walk down the aisle, but you can really know Jesus today. Come talk to me after service. Talk to someone around you. Come fill out one of the cards and the Bibles under your chairs. We would love to show you the loving forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ alone for sinners. How do we know it? The Bible tells us so. How do we know it? We too were once dead in sin. We ain't perfect people. We are sinful people who were made new by Jesus. And we testify to him. God pleads with sinners to turn from their sins through his people. But when this is continually rejected, time and time and time again, when there's no sign of repentance, a person is not sorrowful for their sin, is not making any efforts to turn away from it, no pleas of, of one or two or ten others will turn their hearts. Jesus says that the church must act in another way. Jesus says at the end of verse 17, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, we've already seen in Matthew's gospel that both Gentiles and tax collectors can be converted. But Jesus is using the more common perceptions among the Jews of the day. 
to make a point. For Jews, these two groups were the most sinful, the most despised people they were. They were. They were outsiders, not part of the people of God. Well, that's how Jesus says the church is to treat people who remain in their sin, who reject all other steps of seeking them out. Though they claim to be brothers and sisters, what they're acting like is outsiders. So go ahead and treat them what they want, like what they want to be. Treat them like outsiders. This is the final step of a church's involvement in a sinning member's life. The final step in church discipline, the act of excommunication, putting a professing believer out of the church because their lifestyle no longer matches their profession. They say Jesus is king, but they live like sex is king, like drugs is king, like themselves are king. It's a church saying that based upon what we see in your life, we don't know for certain, but we can no longer confidently confirm that you're following the Lord. Because people who follow the Lord don't love their sin. And you seem to be loving your sin, lavishly living in it. Now, what does putting a person out of the church, excommunicating them mean? It does not mean that we say they can't physically come to the church gathering anymore. We actually want them to come, want them to continue to hear God's word preached, Amen. continue to see God's people pursue holiness in hopes that the Lord might convict them and lead them to repentance. No excommunication means excommuning them. They are no longer invited to communion, to the Lord's table, to the Lord's supper the meal that believers enjoy together to mark our continual following Jesus. So that's why the first Sunday thing that we do is not some silly, ritual, rote, dry habit. It is a sign that Jesus has set up to show that we together are still following the Lord. Amen. And to be excluded from that might seem really petty to you, but heaven to heaven, it speaks volumes. All right, so the church excommunicating is not just saying, don't physically come, please come, but we won't treat you like you're one of us. You aren't allowed to, to sit at the family table and eat the family meal because you pretty much rejected the family. In our church, it looks like voting them out of membership. We don't do that quickly. Church discipline, we, we, we practice it, but we, we don't boast in it as a way to to punish people? We do it because we, we care about obeying the Bible's commands. We care about having a holy congregation. That doesn't seem like a loving thing for a congregation to do, does, does it? But again, on, on what are we basing our conception of love? Love tells the truth about a person. Love doesn't want them to be deceived. If the first step of fixing a problem is admitting that you have one, then this is the church's glaring declaration that you have a huge problem. It's a church showing how much danger this unrepentant sinner or person is in. They are being cut off from the people of God. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel would feel the weight of that, being cut off from the people. We today have the same responsibility to cut off people who don't want to be a part of the Lord's people. Love acts like this. Love doesn't let people be deceived to, to think that there's something they're not. And love protects other members. Knowing how sin affects not just an individual person, but others as well, a loving church does not allow an unrepentant member's sin to spread. Doesn't allow the other members of the church to think that because this person is living this way and the church ain't doing nothing, then sin must be okay, must be normal. No, unrepentant sin must be dealt with. Love protects other members. 
and love upholds the Lord. You know, it's a love for him first and foremost that a church must be marked by. A love for his holy character. And, and where there is one whose sin flies in the face of God's holiness and whose sin affects God's people's holiness, then the church takes the side of God in seeking to root it out. Now, interestingly, unlike what we want and we expect, there's not a specific list of sins that qualify for this final act of excommunication. Right, something that's really bad right, rises to the level of immediate excommunication. No, no, rather what qualifies is a pattern of evident, undisputable, overt, and here's the key, unrepentant sin. Notice throughout this, if he doesn't listen, if he doesn't listen, since there may be really, really, really egregious things that, that call into question immediately someone's salvation, but more often, even some of the weighty sins that we might do, if we repent from them, we treat them like Christians. Unbelievers don't turn from sin. They go from worse to worse. Believers, if, even if we start off with what seems like the worst thing someone could possibly do, if we turn from that sin, it's a sign of the Lord's work in our lives. All right, so we don't just discipline because we don't like the deed. We discipline if the deed is going unrepented of. There's a pattern of unrepentant sin. A loving church loves hard enough to do the hard thing of seeing members out of the congregation if they persist in their sin. And who gives the church the right to do this? But it's the Lord. Amen. Jesus says in verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Amen. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Amen. It's almost a verbatim restatement of what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. When he gave the keys of the kingdom to the church. The authority, that's what those keys represent, the authority to make binding decisions in a professing believer's life. The church has the authority from God to examine a person's life to see if there's a credible profession of faith. In such instances, they bind them into the body. They welcome them as members based upon their profession and lifestyle. It's a weighty thing we do when we accept in members together. But a church also has the authority to loose a person based on examination of their life. If their profession and lifestyle are at odds, they remove a person from membership. They see them out of the church. They make declarations about who is a citizen in God's kingdom and who is not. In those terms, they, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. In the original Greek, read, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed. In other words, it's, God, it's not that God is, is making decisions about people based on the church's decision. Rather, the Lord has amazingly given his people, filled with his spirit, Guided by his word, the ability to act on heaven's behalf. To do visibly on earth a mirror image of what heaven has already declared. So we see here that watching over each other's lives involves not just a loving congregation, but a licensed congregation. Local churches given authority, given license by God to act as his representatives and having his backing. That's Jesus' point in these final few verses. He says in verse 19 that if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, that's not a broad promise about everything. In context, it's referring to the decision a church makes about binding or loosing members on earth. 
This should be done prayerfully by a congregation. And upon acting, they can do so confidently, trusting that they have heaven's approval and support. And they have heaven's presence. Jesus says in verse 20, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Again, it's another verse open to lots of misinterpretation. This is not a verse saying that Jesus is specially present among any combination of Christians at any time in any place. But rather, reading it in context, it's saying that Jesus is specially present when two or three are gathered in the name of Christ as a church representing him to act on his behalf. Unlike in verse 16, two or three here does not represent a subgroup of the entire church, but represents the entire church. The point is that even a really small church, yes, a church can be a legitimate church with just two or three members, so that should be encouraging to us. I mean, think of a missionary in a place with his first convert. They can be a church. They're both believing in Jesus and committing to care for each other. Even there, where, 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 where things look utterly unimpressive, if those two or three gather together in Jesus' name as a church, those little illegitimate-looking people have Jesus Christ among them. They have the King of Heaven residing with them. They, like the three Hebrew boys, have a, a, another person that no one else can see but is right there with them. Through every trial, through every circumstance, through the hardships even of having to deal with hard cases of putting a sinning person out of the church. Remember, we gather in Jesus' name. Jesus says, you gather in my name to protect my name, then I'm going to be right there with you. Now, maybe all this seems a little off-putting to you. Too structured, too involved. This entire process is too much. This, this picture of Christians all up in each other's lives. But at the core of it, isn't this what we're all after? Wanting needing some structure in our lives, wanting to be looked after and loved? I mean, how's living life your own way apart from God, apart from others, actually work out for you? How have churches that have let you do your own thing as long as you give or show up on some Sundays, how they really served you? We're all seeking community, but not the shallow, keep things on the surface, let me live my own life community. What we're after, all of us, is a deep, loving, caring community, enough to tell me when my life does not match my profession, enough to call me to change my ways and to remove me from membership if I don't, enough to love me so much that they care for my eternal soul. Deep down, we all want and truly need the oversight and protection and involvement of people who truly love and care about us. And in a church is where we find that. Saints, pray the Lord would increasingly make us that kind of church and make, of, make us those kinds of Christians that increasingly submit our lives to the church. It's the Lord's design to deepen and mature our faith and to keep us in it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. You love us enough that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. Lord, you love us enough not only that you sent him to save us, to, to bring us into your flock, to your fold, is your family. You loved us enough to surround us with other family members, to look after us, and to care for us. Lord, let none of us despise your love. Let none of us tear away from your love. Let none of us live apart from your love. Let each of us submit to your love, and submit to your church, 
that they might love us well. We pray for those who don't know you, Lord. We pray that they would know you today, that they would know the joys of following Jesus, the joys of, of being united to him in a relationship, united with other brothers and sisters who will give their lives to caring for them. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.